0: Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 24, Psalm 24. We'll pick up in our John series as well as memorization. And so as we're memorizing John 1, 1 through 18, we'll cover through verse 13 next week. And so continue that memorization through John 1, 1 through 13 as a church. We're memorizing that together. But this week, we're gonna study Psalm 24. This is a text for me that I've been meditating on. It's a text that, I imagine there are songs that take the lyrics, come right out of this psalm, or maybe you've read this psalm, or it's been taught before. It's similar to Psalm 23. It's a relatively popular psalm. But for me, in the last few weeks, it's been a psalm that I've been meditating on, and I just want to take the opportunity to just preach and exalt Jesus through this text. And so if you're with me in Psalm 24, would you simply say, "Amen." Amen. Amen. Psalm 24 verse one, let me read it again, like I did at the beginning of the service. "The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands, clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his souls to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. As we gather in worship today, from this text, I'm encouraged to be in worship. I'm grateful for our time of singing and anticipation of just what the Lord will do. It's been an interesting, somewhat interesting afternoon. Um, I got a text from Param uh, this afternoon who said, "Hey, man." Um, Brittany and I are running a little late. Brittany's in uh, at City MD Urgent Care. We think she has an ear infection. She won't be able to make it tonight. To which I responded, "I'm so sorry. I too added a City MD Urgent Care. Which one are you at? Let's see if we're at the same one. We are not. The point is, we are both this afternoon a little busy. So um, th- that's why we're getting things together." We're a li- I got here a little late, so the grill's not quite as set up, and so thank you for just patience this afternoon. Um, th- this is, this is another reason I'm telling you this is, one, because when I was having a conversation with my doctor at the City MD, uh, finds out they think I have shingles um, all down my neck and back, and so a few of you have gone to give me a hug, and I've quickly kind of rejected you. It's not that I'm mad at you. I'm tr- my doctor said, don't let anybody touch your neck. I said, okay, I won't let anybody touch my neck. Um, uh, but anyways, and so, but I asked her, she said, Hey, just, you know, be careful. I said, Hey, do you feel like it's safe for me to go to church? Uh, she's like, yes, just don't let anybody touch your neck and that kind of thing or whatever. And I was like, all right, cool. So I'm going to keep a distance, but I was asking her the question, cause this was at three o'clock. This was at three o'clock. It's now like four something. It was at three o'clock. And, um, I was, I was really excited to preach this text because this is a text that the Lord has used for me in my heart in the last few days to honestly just bring a personal revival that was, that was needed, an opportunity for me just to see God's word and to bring my heart to worship. And so the outline today, you're gonna see as I go through the sermon, I'm gonna give you the main point and then truth one and two are gonna come in like the last 10% of the sermon. So you're going to be like 20 minutes in and I haven't given you truth number one and you're going to be like, oh man, we're going to be here all day long. You're not. I promise you truth one and two are really applications after we walk through the text. So hang on there. But the overall application I'm praying for and I've been praying for is that simply as we look at this text, that we would be a people who would simply respond, Jesus, you are Lord. And we worship you. There's some times where we'll read texts, like when we did the Ten Commandments, and it's telling us, don't lie, don't murder, things like that. The application is don't lie, don't murder, and things like that. Sometimes the application is action, something for you to do when you leave this room. And that is true for today, but really today is about praying that the Holy Spirit would draw your heart in praise and adoration of Jesus. As we ask the question of the text, Who is the King of Glory? And you could probably fill in the main point of the sermon. The answer is simply this. Jesus is the king of glory. I want to unpack this text, and in the process, let's worship Jesus together. Verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Now, keeping in mind that the question that the psalmist is asking is simply this. Who is the king of glory? That's the question. That's kind of the question of the psalm. And so what is happening is the psalmist here is Starting out by lifting up who this God is. And he's saying that this God is the one who the earth and all that is within it is the Lord's. The world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I want you to see that the psalmist, I'm going to explain it, but he's, there's this funnel effect where he's starting broad in his description and he's getting very specific and he's getting more and more and more narrow to bring us to the question of who is the king of glory. So let me explain. The earth is this broad description. The earth is the Lord's and everything that is in the earth. Trees, mountains, animals, people, the earth and all that is in it is the Lord's. Broad funnel effect. And then he says the world and those who dwell in it. Now, Based off the English translation alone, you read that and go, the world, the earth is actually smaller than when we think about the world. Oftentimes, when we think about world, we think about the cosmos and all that is within it. And the earth is a part of that. But you're telling me that the earth is the larger description and the world is actually a smaller description. And here's why. You can see the caveat right here. And it says, those who dwell therein. I was part of meditating on a text. um, And this is a point to make a point, is I often try to translate the text, whether it be Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. I'm not very good at it. I have a lot of tools that help me. But when I was translating this text and I came to the Hebrew word for world here, I noticed it's common translated world, but it's always in the context or context of the inhabited world. Meaning the author is saying that the earth and the Lord and all that's within it is the Lord's. And then the inhabited world and those who dwell therein are also the Lord's. It's, a, it's actually a narrowing of focus. The inhabited world, meaning that when it says the text starts by saying the earth and the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that included Antarctica. But when we go to the world and all there that was within, the inhabited world, that really didn't include Antarctica. And at the time, for the psalmist writing this, who was unaware of North America, probably didn't have North America even in mind. The point is, he's narrowing his focus of talking about the grandeur of God and bringing it to a specific people. The earth and this great God is over all. And that the world and all inhabited people within, he's king over all. Now, got to understand that this is true today in our culture, but definitely true in The culture of David and his time, is that there was a polytheistic culture, meaning there's a belief that these people had God A, these people had God B, and they worshiped these different gods, and they had these different gods, and this God ruled over these people, and this God ruled over these people. Notice the claim that the psalmist is making. All the people of the earth belong to this God that we're talking about. He's speaking to the majesty and the greatness of this God over all other gods and all other beliefs. He's starting by trying to draw our attention to the grandeur and the greatness of the God that he is talking about. Why is he so great? Verse two, for he has founded it, the world and all of its inhabitants, on the seas and established it upon the rivers. Once again, a narrowing focus. We understand when we look at the creation account, God It sees that there was waters and then he separated the waters and then gave land and then the rivers were part of it. So seas to rivers is a narrowing focus once again. Then it asks this question in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of this Lord? The Lord who owns everything, the one who has all of creation, who is God over all the peoples of creation, the ones who have created all things and established all things, who is worthy to ascend The hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? There's two ways for us to interpret this question, and really what the question's asking when we have in mind exactly what is the hill of the Lord and what is the holy place of the Lord. Two ways to interpret this. Both are theologically accurate, biblically accurate, but we got to ask the question exactly which one did he have in mind? Option one is how I've often read this text, and I think rightfully so should read it in all of Scripture, which is I think about the heel of the Lord and stand in his holy place. I think of texts like Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, which all give a description of God on his throne. In the glories of glories, where his glorified state is revealed, it's a picture of his glory and majesty and holiness and righteousness. And every single time when we see Ezekiel's account, Isaiah's account, and John's account in Revelation 4, they all respond by falling on their face in reverence because they recognize they're in the holies of holies, and they are unworthy to stand there. Understand the question, who shall stand in this holy place? They recognize that they are unworthy. And oftentimes when I read this question in this text, I go, who has the right to go into the glories of glories of God? It's a right question to ask. But keep in mind, every one of those texts and examples came after the life of David writing here. Chances are David didn't have those texts in mind when he asked this question. Chances are what David had in mind was Jerusalem. Chances are what David had in mind or the psalmist on writing Uh, A music of David, Psalm of David. The question they probably had in mind, David had in mind, was the hill of the Lord, Jerusalem, and the holy place, the tabernacle. Who was worthy to come to this place. Remember, focusing, the earth has, and all that's in it, the Lord, all inhabited world, all the waters, and the creation, and God narrowing focus. And ultimately, he is God over in his glory right here in Jerusalem, who is worthy. Now, one of the reasons I often think and I believe that David kind of had that specific earthly place in mind is because of verses 7 and following. Let's read those. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Look at verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What does he mean by that? When we begin to think about, I don't know the last time... This happened to you, but I don't remember coming across a gate that had a head that could respond to me. So when you're telling a gate to lift up his head, it's a poetic way of telling the watchman at the entrance of a gate and controlling of the gate to keep their eye open for the one who is the king of glory, who is worthy to come in and enter into God's holy place, the tabernacle, the temple. It's a call of question of the Messiah, See, when you say, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, it's a very poetic way of telling the watchmen over a city who are at the gates, waiting for a messenger to come, or they're looking out for battles or an army coming. They're watching in protection and anticipation of coming, and the writer is saying, watch in anticipation of the Messiah who is to come, who is going to come through the gates of Jerusalem, who's going to come through the gates surrounding the tabernacle. We understand there are gates also, an entrance around the tabernacle where you could come in, and he's telling the watchman to be ready. The king of glory is coming. There is one who is coming. So, in light of that application to the question to verse three, I think David was, even as the heralded king of the Old Testament, was very much writing to call the people to anticipation to one who is much greater than he. And he's telling, as an idea, the watchman, poetically, he's telling the people of Israel, the people of Jacob, to be on the look for the one who is worthy who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He gives an answer to the question, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and he who does not swear deceitfully. Notice the earth, the inhabited world, the waters, the rivers, Jerusalem, and now it asks the question, who is worthy to stand there? And it summarized the answer, one who is perfect which is causing this narrowing focus for me to immediately look inward and should cause you also to look inward. It's causing David to look inward. To the saying, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and one who is perfect, and my immediate response and my immediate terror is I am unworthy. He who has clean hands and a pure heart He does not lift up his soul to what is false, meaning he worships something that is not true, who's worshiping of idol or something that is not worthy of worship and swear deceitfully, lie, gossip, and use his tongue in order to praise or do something in an unworthy manner. Remember, God created us for his worship and our tongues for his praise. And as we read this, we should stand in awe of the one who stands over all. Worthy of all, we desire to be with him who can be with him. And the answer is one who is perfect, which should lead me and everyone in here to go, I am unworthy to do what? Ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in God's presence. We're unworthy. But this is why, as we keep reading, verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, O Jacob. It's a call, once again, because there's this recognition that, God, that we serve a God who has created all things. We serve a God who is above all things. We serve a God who has, is king and Lord over all. Whether you and I realize it or not, it is true. And because he is great and so great, who could, could be comparable enough or worthy enough to come into his presence? And the answer is only one who is perfect, which is, means none of us. So what do we do? This is why the response and the challenge would be verse 7 Lift up your heads, O gates. See, what's happening is the people of God in Jerusalem, or at least in David's time, as they would sing this song, it's clearly going, We're unworthy. No one inside these city walls are worthy. No one here is worthy. We are your covenant people, but we are unworthy. Therefore, we will be on the lookout for the one who is worthy. Now, you and I know the end of the story. We have the rest of revealed scripture to know that this is Jesus, which is the main point of the sermon. Jesus is the King of glory. We are to lift up our heads and be a watchman, ready to open up the gates to let this one come in. But who is he? He is the one who is strong and mighty. He is the one who is mighty in battle. We are to lift up our heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. What does it mean part of the idea of the Lord of hosts? Let's take it real just simple, basic meaning. Yesterday I was invited to a cookout at someone's house in New Jersey. Um Everybody else decided to go in that direction, apparently, in Gridlock in Manhattan. If you were there, we were there together. Eventually, we get to this cookout and this fellowship, and the host was so generous and all these different things, and it made me think about a host is one who maybe owns the location or is responsible for the party, and he welcomes and he shows hospitality And so who is the king of glory? Is the one who owns all of creation, and he hosts you there in his inhabited creation. He's the Lord of hosts. Everything in creation is there at his pleasing. Everything in creation is there at his invitation. And he is there not to submit to that creation, but in order to pour out his lavish love and control in his creation so that his creation honors and glorifies him. Who is that? That is the Lord of hosts. But it still answers the question specifically as you think about it in lineage of time for King David and the people of God. Well, who is this person? Generation after generation after generation goes by and they're asking the question, who is this person? Who is this king of glory? And it leads us to see in the rest of Scripture, Jesus would make it clear that he is this king of glory. You know, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday For a number of reasons. Because we recognize that people rightfully cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest to Jesus. But when he enters that city, he's making a real clear declaration. I am the king of glory who enters into the gates for your salvation. I am the king of glory who enters into the city gates, who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord and who is worthy to stand in the holy place. Why? Because I am perfect. Because he's God, 100% God, 100% man, perfect without sin. Who is worthy? One who is perfect. And so when we read this text, our answer must bring us to simply Jesus. Who is the king of glory? It is Jesus. There's nothing else that is worthy to ascend into the presence of God. There's nothing else worthy who's able to stand in the holy place of God. No person or thing or other idea in all of creation is worthy to do that, but Jesus is worthy. Which leads me to truth number one and application. It's one thing to say that Jesus is the King of Glory. It's the second. It's a whole other thing. Truth number one to recognize that answer to be true. The question of application is: Do you recognize and see that Jesus is the King of Glory? You know, to add the poetic illustration or make a connection, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, is a call to the people of Israel to be prepared to let the Messiah into their city. By way of application and illustration, it would be very similar to me saying, open up your eyes and see that Jesus is Lord and let him into your life. Open up the gates of your life in anticipation because the king of glory desires to enter. What, is it, what does that mean? What does it mean to open up my heart to the king of glory? What does it mean to give over my heart to Jesus? <laughs> um, kids in the room, if, if parents, you disagree with my kids watching this movie, forgive me. No one has clean hands and pure hearts. But my kids were watching The Little Rascals. I realized as a kid, I thought there was nothing wrong with the Little Rascals. As a parent driving to Memphis a few weeks ago with it on the TV, I was, they would say something, Jen and I would go, I'd look over at her and be like, they just said that? We, our parents let us watch that. Anyways, so our kids watch the Little Rascals. When you're driving 18 hours, you're, what you approve of watching widens, because you just want them to be not nagging you, going, "Are we there yet?" Right? So our kids are watching little rascals. I can't watch it, but I'm listening to it. And I'm, What's, the, what's the, the alfalfa? Yeah, the guy yeah, alfalfa. His love letters to Darla. Oh my gosh. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he would say things like this. Oh, Darla, my heart is forever yours. My heart, everything belongs to you. What's he saying? To the core of who I am, I give over to you. Now, when we make statements poetically and very realistically, Jesus, I give you my heart. I'll open up my heart to you. What we're saying is, Jesus, you can have all of my life. I surrender it all to you. And so the Truth number one as way of application to the claim that Jesus is the king of glory. Do you recognize that to be true in your life? Now, let me be clear, because we live in a um, very postmodern culture, which part of postmodern culture means that truth truth is relative to the beholder. Meaning that when I ask the question, is Jesus Lord? And you answer, no, I don't think he's Lord, or that he is, or whatever. Our answer does not determine it to be so, Jesus is Lord whether we determine him to be Lord or not. We don't get to say that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is not Lord and the result is any different. Jesus is Lord no matter what. The question is, will you recognize that truth that Jesus is Lord? And part of recognizing that truth means that you surrender to that truth and you lift up your eyes of your heart, the gates of your heart, and you say, Jesus, King of glory, be the Lord and master of my life because you are the only one worthy. You're the only one worthy to enter into the holy places of God, and here's the beautiful thing. When we recognize that Jesus is worthy, he pours out his salvation on us when we surrender to him, and guess what? He makes us worthy. The text does not just end by us answering the question, Jesus is the king of glory, but the answer to that question now changes everything else. If we answer rightly that Jesus is the king of glory, we recognize that answer and we submit to him as king of glory and we surrender our lives to him, then guess what? When we ask the question, who shall ascend the the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. Now I'm able to say, me. I'm able to ascend the hill of the Lord and I'm able to stand in his place, not because I've earned anything, but because Jesus was worthy, went there on my behalf, and then touched me with his grace and his mercy, poured out his righteousness and salvation on my life, and now has made me worthy. And so when I read this text, Jesus is worthy. He is the king of glory. I recognize that truth. And in salvation, I am now worthy. Do you get that? Now, and be careful if you're misunderstanding me and you're hearing a preacher say that I'm something, therefore I'm worthy to be in front of God. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying the complete opposite. I'm nothing. But Jesus and his love for me has poured out his righteousness and his grace on me and says I'm something and that he loves me despite me. He loves me despite the fact that I didn't earn it or couldn't earn it or unworthy. He loves me simply because he loves me. Think about that. You have a God who loves you, and there's nothing you can do to earn that love or anything you can do to lose that love. What a safe place that is to be. Safe. And so when I read this text, my first response is, Jesus, you are the king of glory. And because you are the king of glory of my life, I too, for all eternity, can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in that holy place. Now, you better believe, I promise, when I get there, my knees, I'm sure they'll go down. Absolutely. But the point is, I get to be there. And I get to be there because Jesus is it. So, truth number two is real simple. How will you respond to that answer? You recognize it to be true. Now, how will you respond with your life? When we connect the dots, the question of the text is who is the king of glory? We respond rightfully in light of Scripture to say Jesus is the King of glory. He is worthy and He has entered into Jerusalem and He died on a cross for my sin and for your sin so that then too He could pour out His salvation on us by grace as a gift to us through faith and we are now worthy. And then we respond even to that truth by going and living as people who are worthy. We as Christians, you may have been around a lot of Christians who... I wanna use the word legalistic in a negative way, who are very legalistic. You gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. And if we're not careful, we can think by doing all these right things that makes us worthy. By coming to church, reading our Bibles, and doing our best to attempt to memorize John 1, one through 18, that makes us a better Christians. Hear me say today, none of those things make you better Christians. In the sense that your identity is not affected by those things. But because Jesus is worthy, because he has made us worthy, my response is one, praise and adoration right here in this moment, but a life that says, God, I want to honor you and live as one who is worthy. So yes, I come to church because scripture says, do not forsake the gathering so that you may build one another up to love and good works. I come so that I can be stirred to worship this God more. I come so I can study God's word and we serve one another and we memorize scripture so we can meditate on it and it can transform our hearts. We do all of those things as a response to and an act of worship to the fact that we are already worthy in Jesus. Let us rest in that, that we are worthy and let us respond in worship. Think of it this way. I like this illustration. For me, it makes sense. Hopefully it makes sense for you. My wife and I, we don't want as much anymore. We've gotten better at this in 12 years of marriage. But in the first like 11 and a half years of marriage, um, we used to fight about what we're going to eat. And I say fight. It wasn't because I want something, she wants something, we'd fight about it. It's because we both wanted the other person to get what they wanted. We would never tell the other person what we wanted. Because we were afraid that they would say yes and it not be something they wanted. And so our conversation would be driving somewhere. What do you want for dinner? I don't know, babe. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. I don't really care. You get what you want for dinner. But no, I really am driving. I need to know which direction you go. Tell me you something you want. Because truthfully, I didn't care what we ate. But what did I care about? I love my wife. And I want my wife to be happy. Therefore, what makes me happy is to give her something that makes her happy. I show my love for her by giving her exactly what she wants. Now I've learned that if I go anywhere to a Greek restaurant, she's always going to be happy, right? A salad, you know, some of those things. I wish it was pizza, but it's not. That's my happiness. That's okay. But I've learned that the point is, is my desire, because she loves me and I love her, I desire to make her happy and just want to know what she wants from me so that I can make her happy. That's what Christian obedience is. We recognize that Jesus loves us and we recognize that and we love him in return because he has made us worthy. And I just simply ask the question, God, how can I show my love for you? Not not how can I earn your love, I already have it, but how can I show my love? And that's where he gives us commandments. He tells us how we can honor him. And this is where we get stuff like the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. I don't lie because I want to show my honor for Jesus by not lying. I'm faithful to my wife because I want to show my honor to Jesus and my wife by being faithful. you get it? My, my obedience to Jesus is a response and an act of love and worship, not a duty to try to earn his love. See the difference. Jesus is the king of glory. He is worthy. When we respond to him in faith, we are worthy. But then our response still then is, okay. As I worship you, how can I go and live worthy today? And so I want to close with this. As you read your Bible this week and you see a command from God, your response should not be, ooh, if I don't do this, God's going to love me less and he's going to be mad at me. Now, there's a righteous anger. Let's keep our theology balanced here. But our response should be, Jesus, you love me no matter what. Whether I read my Bible today or not, you still love me. But out of love and response, I read my Bible and it tells me don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't whatever, to speak kindly and build one another up, to do anything I can to serve one another. When I see those passages of Scripture, we respond this week going, okay, I know a way that I can show my love to Jesus for the fact that he loves me and my love towards others. Who is the king of glory? Jesus is the king of glory. And I pray that you recognize that to be true and you respond with your life as if it is true, because it is. And here's the key. Here's the idea that I wanna leave you with as you ask this question. Maybe you're in here today and you're a friend or you're a guest of someone and you don't yet claim Christ. One, we're so grateful you're here. We want this to be a place where you can ask good questions and you can learn about Christ. But I still leave you with this question. Who is the king of glory to you? Now, once again, that's a very subjective answer as, as if to say your answer actually changes the outcome. So be careful here. Jesus is the king of glory, whether you say he is or not. We've heard that part already. So the question you have to wrestle with, is he the king of glory of my life? Because who else is worthy to enter in to the hill of the Lord? Who else is worthy to stand in the holy place other than the son of God, Jesus Christ? And the answer simply is no one else is worthy. So therefore, we base our entire lives on Jesus and what he has done for us. And might we recognize him as Lord of our lives and respond to him in submission to him with our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king of glory. Oh, I'm so grateful for you. Jesus, it's so easy. And I'm being super personal here between you and me, God, as I've studied this text in the last couple of weeks. I've just been reminded It's so easy for my heart to try to worship something else, that my heart be lifted up to falsehood, to false idols, to things who are unworthy. Whether that be approval of mankind, whether that be accomplishments, whether that be some career goal or some other academic goal or something else, there's a lot of things that my heart, if I'm not careful, will choose to worship above you. But this text, you've simply reminded me, are those things worthy to ascend into the hill of the Lord and to stand in the holy place of God? Absolutely not. Jesus, you are the only one who is able and you're the only one who is able to make me able. And so, I worship you. I recognize you as the Lord of my life and I respond accordingly. And I pray that's true for every person in here. I pray that we as a church family are faithful to your commandments, absolutely. we live in a Christ-like honoring way, but we do it out of the reality that you are worthy and you have made us worthy, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything you've done. You've done it all. You ascended. You died on the cross. Your body was broken for us, and you are the mighty one, a mighty warrior, as this text says, who went and fought death. And defeated it. You rose to life on the third day, defeating death once and for all, and giving us that eternal life and that righteousness and that salvation when we confess you as Lord and Savior of our lives. So, Jesus, we do that now. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164 2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.